We're continuing our look at repentance, and um, uh, last week we introduced the topic, and I want to just review a little bit about that so we kind of remember the definitions. Who can tell me the definition, by the way, of repentance? Change of mind. Change of mind. Speaking of your mind, ingrain that in your mind because that's uh, key. Words mean things. Now, context determines the meaning of the word in its context, but the the, the primary meaning is change of mind, so you have to ask yourself what? Change of mind about what when we see the word? So we're going to continue that here in just a moment. Before we do, I know we got a lot of people watching this uh, online and want to remind you that our website, notbyworks.org, is the main platform. That's the go-to place uh, that we have control over in this cancel culture, this age of big tech censorship and shadow banning. Um, you know, you, you, they, they're really, you know, uh, attacking a lot of the conservative Christian uh, sites. And so I know we've been shadow banned and I've had some videos taken down. So um, I want to encourage you to kind of make notbyworks.org. If you're looking for any of our videos or podcasts, your go-to place, you can get to everything from there. All the links are there. And, uh, you know, the main menu has videos, it has podcasts, it has, has all of that. And uh, so just wanted to remind you of that. And you can still find us on, on uh, YouTube and Rumble and some of those other things. And if you want to subscribe there, that's great. But just keep in mind that you can get to everything from the website. So let's uh, remember how, why we are calling this the Wells of Salvations, because Isaiah the prophet, 800 years before Christ, used that metaphor to talk about the, the deliverance of national Israel. In the context of Isaiah 12, he says, uh, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And he's using that phrase to talk about the future ultimate inauguration of the kingdom when the Messiah comes and all of the Old Testament prophecies about the blessings upon Israel are fulfilled. We're using it uh, metaphorically as well to talk about our individual salvation and key terms. And we've uh, come in our list of terms that we're studying to this notion of repentance. And as you correctly recalled, and probably most of you already knew anyway, uh, the meaning of repentance is change of mind. And so some of the key verses just by way of review as it relates to eternal salvation would be Acts 20.21 20, where Paul is speaking at Miletus to the Ephesian elders whom he had summoned on his third missionary journey. It was the uh, spring of 57 A.D., and uh, he didn't want to go back to Ephesus, remember, because there had been a riot there. So he says, hey, you guys come here. I want to talk. And in the midst of that, he uses this phrase. He says how they had been testifying to both Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the word repentance. What should we ask? Change your mind about what? So clearly the text tells us, in this case, change your mind about God or have a change of mind in perspective to God. And indeed, that's what really the gospel message that Paul had been preaching uh, now for some 20 years since his first missionary journey was, hey, you guys need to recognize your view of God is incorrect. Uh, and it can be incorrect in a lot of different ways. And it's incorrect to this day for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Muslims have an incorrect view of God. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, Catholics, people that have a misunderstanding about who God is and how we can be made right with Him, need to repent. They need to change their mind about God. But notice Paul also mentions that part of the gospel that he had been preaching not only entailed a change of mind about God and Christ and the whole plan of salvation, but it involved obviously faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith is the one and only condition in the Bible 
for gaining eternal life, from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam until the end of the millennial phase of the kingdom, everyone who gets saved and, and gains eternal life does so the same way, by faith and faith alone. The content of faith changes as God revealed more and more information. Uh, you know, Abraham didn't believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died on a cross and rose for our sins, because that name Jesus hadn't even been revealed yet. But he certainly believed in God as the only one who could provide redemption. And, uh, so, and that's true. And today, the gospel is very plainly spelled out uh, in more than 160 times in the New Testament alone, that it's faith alone, in Christ alone, the Son of God, who died and rose for our sins. And so that was the gospel that uh, Paul was preaching. We see another usage of the term in Hebrews 6.1 to speak of eternal salvation, when the writer of Hebrews is sort of rebuking the early Jewish Christians to whom he is writing, about how they've regressed in their knowledge and they've become kind of immature believers. And he says, I don't need to lay again this foundation of repentance from dead works. So we see the word repentance. What should we ask? Change your mind about what? Here it tells us about your dead works. You know, we've already talked to you, in other words, about how you needed to change your mind about your works. Your dotting of your I's and crossing of your T's, your... Uh, keeping every letter of the law, the good works, is not going to make a difference. What makes a difference is faith toward God, right? And so we can also see another usage of the term, not in the context of eternal salvation, but I bring this up and I brought it up last week because it's an illustration of how one English translation at least actually translates the Greek word as change of mind. So this is the New King James, and this is also in Hebrew in the context of Esau as an example of someone who, despite regretting his decision to sell the birthright, couldn't get Isaac to change his mind. And the writer says, For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, talking about Esau here, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He tried to get Isaac to change his mind. The NIV actually translates it that way. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind. That's what the word means, change of mind. So we talked about how it's a compound word in Greek. The noun is metanoia. The verb is metanaeo, to change one's mind, and it comes from two words, meta, meaning afterward, or again, uh, uh, and noeo, meaning I think. So the idea here is to think afterward, or to think again. And that's why when we see the word, we should ask, think again about what, or change your mind about what. So uh, that's kind of what where we... Uh, landed last week on the definition, change your mind, about what. And then uh, we talked about context a little bit. I won't go back for the sake of time and review all of that, but remember we used the example of the word save and how similarly, like all words, words have to be defined uh, in their context, right? Um, and so, um, you know, save can mean save from the penalty of sin, meaning eternal life, save from physical sickness or bad health, saved from danger. Uh, so saved doesn't always mean eternal, eternally. And indeed, as I mentioned, 58% of the time, the, the usage of the term save in the New Testament, which is the Greek verb sozo, uh, always, uh, has to do with physical, temporal salvation, not eternal life. And then uh, we did the same thing with the word soul, 
Psuche is the Greek word and talked about how it can mean the physical aspect of man, the immaterial aspect of man, or sometimes it can mean both. So that's why context is so critical. And when it comes to repent, we should say change your mind about what? Or a change of mind about what is uh, the idea. So uh, we spent some time talking last week about <clears throat> repentance as it relates to eternal salvation. And we said it means to change your mind about God or Christ. How do you do that? Well, you trust in Jesus as the only one who can forgive sin and provide eternal life. So we could, we could list all sorts of hypothetical ways in which someone has repented and been saved. Um, maybe they used to think that uh, they were good enough you know, to get to heaven. And they now realize that no man can measure up. Everyone's a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. And God doesn't grade on the curb. It's not about being 99% righteous or 99.9% .9 righteous. You have to be perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Jesus said, you want to get in the kingdom of heaven? Fine, be perfect, just like my heavenly Father is perfect. So maybe they used to think they were good enough, but they've changed their mind and realized, no, no, the only righteousness that heaven will accept is God's perfect righteousness imputed to them through faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, maybe someone didn't think they were a sinner. Maybe they thought, you know, I'm, I don't recognize my sinfulness, and therefore I don't think I have any penalty. Well, they need to repent. And when they repent through the Spirit of God who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, uh, someone shares the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10.17. This, they, so they get under conviction. They realize, in fact, they are a sinner. They've changed their mind. They used to think they weren't a sinner. Now they realize they are. And then they trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Uh, maybe they thought they could be saved by the seven sacraments. Uh, maybe they thought they could be saved and have you know eternal paradise by the five pillars of the Islamic faith. But whatever they used to think, they needed to change their mind about God and Christ and eternality and all of that. And instead trust in Christ and Him alone. Now, we've talked about how repentance does not mean stop sinning, at least not inherently. Context determines meaning. So, if, if you're talking about sin, and I were to say to you, you need to repent of that sin, what I mean is you need to change your mind about sin, and depending on the context, most likely what I mean is you're doing something that's wrong, you need to recognize it's wrong and stop doing it. So it can mean that, but the term itself is not a technical term that is always associated with sin the way most people say it is. So you look at a lot of gospel presentations, you look at gospel tracts or listen to altar calls and presentations of the gospel on uh, you know, the radio or podcast or watch videos on YouTube, and you, what you'll find is the people will quote verses that use the word repent, and they'll say, see, I told you you have to repent of your sin to be saved. But you look at the verse and you recognize that verse doesn't say anything about sin or eternal life. or it, it, Yeah, it might use the word repentance like the one verses we already looked at, but it's talking about repenting of your ideas about your dead works or repenting of your ideas about God, you know, those kinds of things. So, uh, some people have sort of made this interpretive leap that, and it's what uh, D.A. Carson calls the fallacy of technical meaning, that any time they see the words repent or repentance, they automatically think sin is in the context. And so 
they'll uh, they'll tell someone that if you want to be saved, you've got to, you know, it's a full spectrum. Those who make this error, some of them go as far as to say you've got to stop sinning, which should be pretty clear that that's not possible and that's not what the Bible teaches. You don't get to heaven because you stopped sinning. In fact, you can't stop sinning until you have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help convict you and lead you and guide you. Um, but some people say, no, no, you don't have to stop sinning. We get it. That's, that's not part of how you get saved. But you at least have to have a desire to stop sinning. If you're going to get eternal life and you come to the moment where you want to believe in Jesus Christ and Him alone and thereby receive the free gift of eternal life, they say in that moment, you must repent of sin, which they define as change your desires or at least have a willingness to, and then they'll insert all kinds of words, follow him, submit to him, surrender to him, make him Lord, put him on the throne, you know, turn your life around, change your attitude, volitional, you know, they use all these phrases and they sort of infuse that into the meaning of faith or believe, which those words, those concepts have nothing to do with belief. Faith is the Greek word pistis. Believe is the Greek word pistua. It just means a confidence or assurance in some truth. So when you are confident that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins, in that moment, you've passed from death to life. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Uh, if you believe in him, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. To front load the conversion moment with a lot of requirements of some type of perspective on your own poor behavior, whether it's actually stopping it or promising to stop it or pledging to stop it or being willing to stop it, is not biblical. And it also is not logical. Because suppose uh, I would say to you that if you want to go to heaven, you must be willing to stop sinning. Well, uh, it seems to me that a a goal of going to heaven, that is, having eternal life. And by the way, let me interject here, because this, this is an important point. So when I come back, I'm going to, because I'll probably forget, I'm going to be picking up with willingness to stop sinning. But a lot of times I'll say, go to heaven, and people will push back in this postmodern age and say, salvation's not about heaven, it's about a relationship with Jesus and living your best life now, and, you know, the Christian hedonism and all these kinds of things. It's I want to emphatically tell you that's not what it's about. <laughs> it is about heaven and it is about hell. God didn't send his son Jesus to the cross and Jesus didn't go to the cross so that you could have a better life now. He went there to rescue you from the penalty of sin. That's what salvation's about. That's what we're being delivered from. It is true that all, once you know the Lord Jesus, it brings the, a quality of life now. Jesus said you can have life and that more abundantly. There are a lot of blessings that come with being a born-again believer on this earth. But let's not ever confuse the issue. The issue is we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the punishment for that sin is eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. And that's why Jesus died as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He didn't die just so we'd be happier and healthier and find purpose and meaning in life and feel like we have direction and contentment. Those are all byproducts of a, a correct walk with the Lord and walking in the Spirit and walking by faith, right? So, so when I say, you know, if you want to go to heaven, that is not, that, that's extremely biblical. That is ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about a lost person. They are lost and on the road to hell. They need Jesus so that they can be forgiven of their sin and now 
have their home in heaven eternally secure at that moment. So back to the moment of conversion. If you want to go to heaven and you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven, you with me? You, you, know, you want to have this assurance. You want to be able to say confidently, I know that I know that I know. Like Paul said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that. You want to know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. And allegedly the requirement to achieve that is a willingness to stop sinning. Well, then you describe to me under that scenario how you can know that you've had enough willingness. How do you measure that? What can I point to to say, done, I know I'm willing to stop sinning? I mean, frankly, are we always, aren't we always sort of enticed and desiring to sin? It's called the old man. Paul describes it you know, quite eloquently in Romans 7, that there are things we don't want to do, sometimes we do them, and there are consequences for that. There are things we know we should do, and sometimes we neglect them, and there are consequences for that. Um, so if, if the criteria, or in this case the criterion for getting into heaven is a willingness to stop sinning, how can I ever know that I'm going to heaven? Because I'm not always willing to stop. Sometimes I'm willing to sin. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in Romans 7. He uses it several times, the word will. He says, sin wills to have me. There's this struggle. In Galatians 5, he says, the flesh lust against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. Um, and we don't do the things that we know we should do. We're back to Romans 7. So repentance, as it relates to eternal salvation, does not have anything to do with a change of mind about sin. Okay. Um, it has to do with uh, a change of mind about God. Now, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner, no question. If you don't know that you're drowning, you're not going to reach for the life preserver. So certainly knowing that you're a sinner goes without saying. If you don't know you're a sinner, you don't need to be saved. But knowing you're a sinner and pledging or promise to turn from that sin are two entirely different things. And there are a lot of people out there that are suggesting that at the moment of gaining eternal life, you have to be willing to turn from all your sin to forsake all unrighteousness, to do a U-turn like a lot of gospel tracts suggest, or to surrender yourself in full obedience and pledge obedience to, to the Lord. None of that has anything to do with the simple equation of faith alone. The gospel is not that complicated. The devil has done a good job after 2,000 years of blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But it's so simple a child can understand it. See, unlike quantifying our willingness, right, um, which is very hard to quantify, I would say impossible, right? You know, how willing are you to do this? Well, 80%. I'm 70%. I'm, not, I'm 100%. Well, really? You know, can you say that for sure? But faith is absolutely quantifiable. You know what you believe. In fact... If I'm, I'm going to get a little philosophical for a second, I'll, if you'll bear with me. It is impossible, short of a mental illness or a mental injury to the brain, it is impossible not to know whether you believe something or not. With any proposition, there are ultimately only two options. 
Follow me on this. You either believe it or you don't. And you might say, well, I just haven't made up my mind yet. F fine, but that, at that moment, you don't believe it. <laughs> so at that moment, you either believe it or you don't. If you haven't made up your mind, you don't believe it, right? So you, you can't, no one would ever logically say, well, you know, I don't know whether or not I believe it. People might say colloquially, well, I don't know if I believe that or not. They're saying, I haven't made up my mind. That's really what they're saying. But if I say to you, do you believe X? You, you, unless you have a mental illness, you can't say, I don't know. I can't tell you. <laughs> maybe I do. Maybe I don't. I don't know. I wish I knew. No, it's a nominological fallacy to not be able to know what you believe. So you either believe it or you don't. You can answer the question. It's a, at some point, you, you might or might not cross over to, I believe it. I used to not, but now I do. Right? How many of you believe Joe Biden is the president of our country? You either believe it or you don't, right? I can't believe it, but I believe it. You know what I mean? Um, uh, how many of you believe uh, it's Wednesday? I mean, you know what you believe, right? Um, some things are speculative, and we use, in English, we use the word believe as in the sense of predictive. How many of you believe the Dallas Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl? I hope they do. I might think they do. I, I bet they will. You know, that, we use believe in a variety of nuances. But the biblical word believe, pistuo, means to be confident and assured of something. And if you have doubts in that one thing, you can't be having faith in it at the same time. So in other words, you can't hold that thought for one second. You can't come to the moment of believing in Jesus Christ and Him alone for eternal life and say... I am not sure if I believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. If you're not sure, you don't believe. So faith and belief, I mean faith and doubt cannot coexist in the same proposition at the same time. It's impossible to believe and not believe the same thing. Now in Matthew, we see the example of uh, the uh, man who says, I believe but help my unbelief. But what he was talking about is, Lord, I believe in you. I've seen what you've done. I believe you're God. I believe you can do great miracles. But help my unbelief about you. But I wouldn't say, I believe you can heal my son, but I don't believe you can heal my son. You can't have both. He either believes it or he doesn't, right? So faith in Jesus Christ happens at a punctiliar moment in time. You used to believe any number of other things would get you to heaven. You've now repented and you now understand that only Jesus saves you and you're trusting him and him alone to save you. Yeah. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a two-part question. So there's two things when you're talking about repentance and faith. So there's, number one, a group that believes that you can have faith in Jesus, but you don't even need to know that Jesus is God's son. Right. So they can't really have repentance about God. So they think you can have faith, but it's not connected to repentance, I don't think. And number two, can you have repentance and not have faith? Sure. People change their mind about God all the time. You know, people in the secular world, I used to, I used to hate God. Well, now I think he's pretty cool, but they've never trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. They've never believed the gospel, right? So you can change your mind about a lot of things. Changing your mind as it relates to eternal life means you've changed your mind about God and Jesus and understand that only Jesus saves you and you're placing your faith in him. I think I said that in this previous uh, slide. So 
repentance as it relates to eternal salvation is limited to a change of mind about God or Christ or related topics such that, don't miss the second bullet, such that you've now trusted in Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you eternal life. Now, you brought up a good uh, point, and this is really important stuff. So I'm not, and I, as I've said many times with our midweek Bible study, I'm not on any agenda. It's not like a Sunday morning sermon series or some of my other series. We're just talking and dialoguing and studying the Word. So I don't care if it takes us 10 weeks to get through this material. Um, but when you're trusting in Jesus, obviously trusting in a person necessitates some information about that person. Does that make sense? And I think I might have said this last week, but if I said to you, hey, do you guys uh, believe in Joe? If I just walked in here and said that, what, what would your first question be? Huh? Who's Joe? <laughs> right? So there is a group out there that suggests that you can believe in Jesus and know nothing about him. It's just like believing in this name, Jesus or whatever, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible, uh, it's the person and work of Christ that saves, right? You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, that he's not, you may not have a full, fully developed Christology like some theologian, but even at age six when I trusted Christ, I knew the bare minimum that, look, this guy is different because he's not. he was dead, now he's not. So he's not a human like you and me. I'm not just trusting in some other guy. I'm trusting in someone special, someone unique. We, we, we know that as the deity of Christ. Whether you know the term or not, you have to understand that there's something different about this guy, that he is what we call the Son of God or God in the flesh. But you have to understand that he died and rose again for your sins. That's the essence of it, right? How can you believe in Jesus for eternal life if you never know that he even died, right? And, um, you know, you, you probably are thinking of the same person that I am or group. And I asked a, a, a guy one time who was teaching that. I said, let me make sure I'm understanding you. You're suggesting that a person can get saved today. Let's hypothetically say they're, they're, they're really saved. They die, get hit by a bus or something, and go to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they meet Jesus and find out only then for the first time that he died and rose again for their sins. And he said, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> as long as they believed in a guy named Jesus, they don't have to know anything about him. No, that's not true. It's impossible to believe in somebody if you don't know anything about him. And the Bible quantifies for us what it is we have to believe. We don't have time to go into all of that in, in detail here. If you're interested, you can pick up Getting the Gospel Wrong, which I have multiple chapters on that but Romans or 1 Corinthians 15 is a pretty basic place to start the gospel by which we are saved is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried and rose from the dead according to the scriptures rose on the third day so the death and resurrection of Christ are instrumental parts of and critical parts of the content of saving faith so uh, you can state the gospel in 10 words Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the essence of it. Now, you can clarify it and add to it, and you can you know, say it in different ways, in different languages, but if you don't have the death and resurrection of Christ, you haven't preached the gospel. And so a lot of uh, bad gospels today make eternal life and the, the gaining of eternal life, the you know, going to heaven, 
they, they water it down and make it all about, well, are you feeling lonely and depressed and discouraged? Does your life have no meaning and purpose? Well, come to Jesus and all will be well. So people walk an aisle, sign a card, raise a hand, do a dance, whatever they do. And they think because they've come to Jesus, whatever that is, they're now on their way to heaven. But they never heard, nor did they believe, the pure gospel. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which in the context of Romans 10 and 9, going back to chapter 9, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So you, it's faith in Christ, yes, but when we say faith in Christ, we mean faith in the Christ who died and rose again for our sins. And there's only one that meets that criteria. Um, so, you know, uh, people would who hold that view, which, which I call the promise-only gospel. It's referred to as the crossless gospel in some circles. But they would point to passages like Acts um, 16. What am I thinking of? Acts 16.31? Let me find it real quick. I think yeah. passages in John. Well, well, that too. But Acts 16.31, they'll say when, with the... Uh, Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer, and the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And they say, well, see, he didn't tell them that Jesus died and rose again. And, but you have to understand, this is a historical narrative and we're just taking out one sentence of a dialogue. Paul and Silas were in jail, undoubtedly telling them about Jesus Christ who died and rose again for their sins many times. And in that moment, they said, believe in Jesus, the one that we've talked about, right? So historical narratives are only giving you snippets of what's happening in that moment. They're not doctrinal in the sense of epistolary or, lit or the letters. Um, so it'd be similar to if I've been uh, meeting with someone who's unsaved and trying to share the gospel with them over a period of weeks. Maybe we meet for lunch a couple times a week and I'm telling them all about sin and their, their problem and the you know, predicament and, and, and the solution in Christ and how God sent his son, how he died, he paid their penalty. And I'm just basically elaborating on the whole plan of salvation to them. And one day you happen to walk through the restaurant and uh, coincidentally and, um, uh, see me sitting there and as you're walking by to be seated at your table you hear me say so bill if you'll just trust in jesus you can be saved and then you were to take from that little passing comment and assume that that's the sum total of the gospel there's no no other content well that would be ludicrous right well that's what people are doing when they pull verses like this out of uh the book of acts without understanding the nature of that type of literature so did you have a follow-up question or okay so any questions i know i've kind of talked about a lot so far, but any questions about this notion of a willingness to sin? Because you can't really quali qu quantify that, right? And I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I don't want to think that I'm going to heaven. You know, you can be 100% sure today based on the promise of Christ. So any questions about that? Yeah. Steve, first. Is it possible not to sin? Is that a possibility or is it happen? In a moment, sure. Like we talked about with a fam with a family of God, fellowship with God, you know, you can be you're, you're sold under sin until we reach our glorified state when this mortal puts on immortality. 
But you can be walking with the Lord, walking by faith, and walking in the Spirit, producing fruit of the Spirit. Um, but it, it, but it's, it's not going to be a permanent state. You can never reach a position of sinless perfection this side of glory. Right? Does that make sense? Jeff? Well, I was just going to say there, there are quite a few atheists who, they may not call it sin, but they'll have a, maybe a negative lifestyle, and they'll have the willingness to want to not do that, but they right. just can't help themselves. So that, But then also the, the one question I had was, in the interaction between faith and doubt, um, you were saying, I think, that at the moment where you're, you transfer from, from death to life, Doubt's not a part of that. Correct. But then afterwards, obviously, we witnessed John the Baptist. You know, there's other people who Peter. have moments of doubt. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's all about that moment when you say, I believe. Yeah. So that's a great point of clarification. There was another hand over here. Was it you? Same thing. Oh, it was. Okay, good. So I was going to just make sure I, you know, use up the rest of my time so you well, don't I get to ask yeah. you're deferring are you is the gentleman from colorado yielding his time the balance of his time okay, okay good um so uh, this always struggles with people and i and i'm I've been spent 30 years trying to find the best way to articulate it, and i don't think i've ever landed there yet but i'm working on it because i understand it's kind of a stumbling block but for justification eternal salvation it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's faith, and it's faith the size of a mustard seed. In other words, you don't have to really, really believe the gospel to be saved, or really, 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 really believe it. And if you just believe it but don't really, really believe it, you're not saved. It's not how you believe that gives you eternal life. It's that you believe. It's the, it's the object of our faith that saves. So another way to say it is it's what you believe, not how you believe. So when faith meets the right object... In that moment, you're born again. So you, you, people can and do believe many things in life that will not bring eternal life. People believe in the five pillars of the Islamic faith, or they believe in their good works, or their seven sacraments, or because they took communion, or whatever. Um, those things are, that's faith, but it's not faith in the right object, so it's not going to save them. But when our faith is, is uh, when we turn the attention of our faith to the one and only thing that can save us, which is the person and work of Christ, in that moment, we're saved. And in that moment, if you don't really believe Jesus is going to save you, you're, you're not believing Jesus is going to save you, right? Again, 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone, not doubt alone in Christ alone. So a person who says, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and Jesus, I don't know if you can save me or not, but I'll give it my best shot. I mean, that's not faith. Faith is the confidence. So you come to Christ and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and I'm trusting you. I'm abandoning my faith in everything else. I'm trusting you to save me. In that moment, you're saved. Now you're a believer, and as you pointed out, the Bible has a lot to say for believers now about the quality of our faith. So in the Bible, you can have rich faith, poor faith, steadfast faith, wavering faith, strong faith, weak faith, dead faith, living faith, all kinds of adjectival qualifiers to faith for believers. Our faith wavers all the time. 
That's why Paul challenges the Corinthian believers to walk by faith, because it's possible to not be walking by faith. And that's why he also says in the, at the end of the second letter that we should examine ourselves to see if we're, the idea there is walking by faith. People completely misinterpret 2 Corinthians 13.5 as if Paul is saying, examine yourselves to see if you're really a Christian. No, he's, he's not doubting his own salvation there. He's, he's saying, at this moment, are you doing what I said in chapter 5 to do, which is walking by faith? Are you living by faith in this moment? Examine yourselves. And we ought to always do that. Every day we ought to say, Lord, I want to walk by faith. I want to live by faith. So our faith can be strong. It can be weak. It can be rich. It can be poor. It can be wavering. It can be steadfast. So as a believer, the whole goal is to grow your faith, to mature your faith. But it's not how much faith you have that saves you. It's the faith in the right object, in the right object. Did Sally, do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Jesus said in the Bible that I should be doing, am I then sinning? Well, sin, there's three words for sin in the Bible. They can refer to missing the mark, blatant rebellion, or breaking the law. So uh, it depends on, you know, uh, to him who knows to do right and, and does not do it, to him it is sin. So none of us can say, you know, pridefully that I'm doing everything every believer should do. We all have weak moments. But the Spirit of God living within us will convict us of those things. And, and that you can have a seared conscience. You can, you can have a uh, hardened heart, those kind of things. But in the normal sense, if you're in the Word of God, you're fellowshipping with believers, you're praying, um, the Spirit of God will convict you of those things. So you can't walk around thinking, well, you know, I'm not perfect, so I must be sinning. Well, you're not perfect in the positional, you know, ultimate glorified sense. We are positionally righteous with God. Let me rephrase that. We are positionally righteous in Christ. That's our identity is in Him. But practically speaking, our, we don't always live like our position. Remember, we've talked a lot about position and practice. And so um, positionally we're justified. It means to be declared righteous. But practically we don't always do what's righteous, do we? So... Uh, only really you and the Holy Spirit can answer that question about things that you feel like you should be doing that you're not. Um, so there are obvious things the Bible is very clear about, moral standards, that if you do that, it's unequivocally sin. But, I mean, it could be... Paul talks about uh, how we ought to be sensitive to weaker brothers, right? And so if the Spirit of God puts it on your heart that you need to call somebody or stop by and visit somebody or send them an encouraging letter and you turn a deaf ear to that and you know resist the spirit then that could be sin for you right that's not a moral absolute does that make sense Unfortunately, so, yes. yeah i know <laughs> so i want to go back to something a point jeff made which was uh i thought very uh profound uh, and he talked about back to this willingness to sin, which is kind of where this conversation started, that even unbelievers can have a willingness to stop doing bad things, which ought to be indication enough that that's not a criteria for eternal life. Um, Paul talks about in Romans 2 uh, that even for unbelievers, their conscience 
bears witness, you know, uh, in verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the laws, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. And he's talking about unbelievers there, Romans 2, 14 and 15. So, you know, this notion that I've got to be willing to stop doing everything that's bad in order for God to give me the gift of eternal life, first of all, any condition means that it's no longer a gift. I mean, think about it. A gift, by definition, is no strings attached. It's free, free to the receiver, paid for by the giver. Uh, and if I attach conditions to it, you know, it's no longer a gift, is it? And, you know, I think I've told the story, maybe not in here, but when our girls were younger, um, we gave them, uh, I forget what it was, a dollar or two dollars or some, some gift, and said, you can, we're going to take you to the dollar store, you can get whatever you want. And um, so I forget which one, but one of them kept coming back with some kind of a cheap little Chinese-made something that was going to break before we got into the car. And I would say, no, 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 you can't get that. Okay, find something different. Oh, you can't get Finally, they said, well, I thought, thought we could get whatever we wanted. It was a gift, right? And it was convicting. And I thought, yeah, you know what? That's true. I can't, if, I, if I'm going to attach conditions to it, it wasn't a gift. <laughs> it was a contract. You can have this money, but you can only spend it on this, this, or this, which is fine to do, but just call it what it is. That's an agreement, a contract. And a lot of people have that notion about our eternal salvation, that it's a bilateral contract between us and God. And as long as we keep our end of the bargain and keep our commitments up front, you know, then he'll give us eternal life. But that's one of the reasons I make a, a big point of discouraging people from using the term commitment to refer to how they got saved. You know, people say all the time, I committed my life to Christ when I was six. Or, would you like to commit your life to Christ? You know, I, I, don't like, I don't like calling them commitment cards because it's not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. And as Charles Ryrie used to say, a gift is one directional. There's one giver, one receiver. God's the giver, we're the receiver. John 1, 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. And when we try to give things to God in order to get eternal life, we've reversed um, the order. And so people don't get saved by making a commitment to God. Every believer ought to make commitments every day. Lord, I want to follow you more. Lord, I want to be sensitive to your spirit more. more Lord, I want to walk in the faith. Lord, today I commit to, to read your word more. You know, we, we make commitments all the time, and we ought to do that as part of the sanctification process. But the justification process isn't a bilateral agreement contingent upon our commitment. And when you get right down to it, making a declaration to God that you're willing to do something is nothing more than a commitment which you may or may not keep but coming empty-handed nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling and saying Lord I'm a filthy rotten dirty sinner and it's only by your grace that I can be saved and I'm trusting you to save me today bingo you know that's it that's saved so um so don't use the word commitment. Um, I mean, I know what we mean when we say that, and it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but I think it really doesn't do us any favors in communicating the clarity of the gospel, especially when we talk about it being a free gift. So any other thoughts about 
repentance as it relates to eternal life and this notion of being willing and how willing do you have to be and is that even part of the equation? Do you follow me on it? Kind of makes sense, at least to some degree. Good. Well, I, you know, I would just encourage you to kind of keep thinking about that and just understand that um, repentance just means a change of mind. And again, you have to understand you're a sinner. That goes without saying. So, but understanding you're a sinner and making some pledge or promise to do something about it are two entirely different things. So. So let's talk about, and just at least begin the discussion, about the other side of the equation. So we're not talking about how to have eternal life, but just repentance as it relates to sinful behavior, because there are some passages where it, it talks about that. So uh, it doesn't mean a change of behavior, but it can mean a change of your mind about your behavior, right? But not explicitly change your behavior. And the reason we know this, well, I'll, I'll show you the verse in just a second, but to complete the thought, repentance is a thinking verb, not an action verb. So changing your mind about your behavior can lead to a change of mind about your action, or can lead to a change of action, rather, but they're not the same thing. Does that make sense? All right, let me, let me try it again. So repentance is a change of mind not a change of behavior. You can change your mind about your behavior. Man, I, I really shouldn't do that anymore. I used to think I should do that. You know, uh, pick anything, uh, smoking cigarettes or drinking sodas or whatever. Um, I can say, I used to think those were okay. I've changed my mind. I, I, I don't think those are okay. But changing my mind about it isn't the same thing as stopping doing it, right? And, and so, for example, I can give you the classic example, um, going back to the idea of cigarettes. Uh, a person might not think that cigarettes are bad for them, for their health. After studying it, looking at the data, talking to doctors, or they've come to realize, oh, it is bad for me. They've changed their mind, right? But they may, not, may or may not stop smoking, see? A change of mind does not automatically guarantee a change of behavior, right? And that's the logical fallacy that a lot of people make with this idea of repentance. Um, that if you've repented of sin, it automatically means it will result in a change of behavior. But that's the reason that John the Baptist said you should bear fruits worthy of repentance. If the bearing of fruit was the repentance, this sentence would make no, no sense. Repentance can lead to a change of behavior, and when it comes to bad actions, it should. <laughs> but people act inconsistently with their beliefs all the time. And so it would be silly for me to say to a person who, let's say, smoking cigarettes, and I'm not picking on smoking cigarettes, it's just, it's, it's a fact not in dispute that that's not healthy for you. There are a lot of things that are not healthy for you, but I'm just picking that as an example. Um, and and if, if I see someone smoking and I say, don't you know that's bad for you? And they say, yeah, I know. I would be silly to say to them, well, no, you obviously don't believe that. No, no, I, I really do believe it's bad. I, the evidence is incontrovertible. No, you don't. You don't believe it's bad for you. If you believed it was bad for you, you wouldn't do it. 
Well, no, sir, I really do believe it's bad. I just am addicted and I haven't made the volitional decision to stop. That perfectly illustrates the mental change of mind of repentance and the resultant consistent behavior, or in this case, inconsistent behavior. See my point? So repentance is not in and of itself a change of behavior. Repentance in the Bible sometimes means change your mind about your behavior and then bear fruits worthy of that. But it's not the same thing as a change of behavior, even though we've sort of turned it into that. And that's because repentance is a thinking verb, not an action verb. So everyone should repent of their sinful behavior. Be, by the way, believers and unbelievers alike. And I think I said last week, look, you know, sin is bad. I'm on record as being against sin. Don't recommend it. It always leads to great unpleasantness. It's got bad consequences. It has nothing to do with, you know, your behavior has nothing to do with eternal life. If you're a believer who sins, and you die, you'll go to heaven. If you're an unbeliever who sins and you die, you'll go to hell. Uh, our behavior isn't the determining factor. But regardless, our behavior has consequences. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. You know, you shouldn't sin. You should repent of their sinful behavior. Ch repent, change your mind about it, and then stop doing it, right? Uh, and this includes believers and unbelievers because sinful behavior always leads to great problems. So change your mind about it, right? And, and Luke 13.3 is a passage that many people use in the context of the gospel and has nothing to do with the gospel. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In the context, there were some Galileans who'd been in Jerusalem offering sacrifices at the temple. If you want to go back to Luke 13, you can kind of follow this train of thought. And a Pilate at the time, who was the Roman governor, killed them beside the altar in the temple courtyard slaughtered them. And a lot of people in Jesus' day believed that that event was the direct result of some personal sin. Most people have this quid pro quo view of God. If something bad happened to you, you must have sinned. You must have done something wrong, right? Um, remember the question that the Pharisees asked, maybe it was the disciples that asked Jesus, well, what, what sin did this person commit that his son was born blind? I think it was a son. And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents did anything wrong, but that God may be glorified. Sometimes bad things happen to, to good people. Um, so they were these people that Jesus was speaking to in Luke 13 uh, you know, thought that, that they, they, these people were being punished. And Jesus took this opportunity to basically explain, look, all sin kills. Remember, perish does not always mean, it's the Greek word apolumi, it does not always mean eternally. It can mean that. Context determines meaning. Just like save doesn't always mean eternally, perish doesn't always mean eternally. It can mean physically. So we see both words used in Matthew 8 when the disciples were on the boat during the storm, and the, the storm arose, and they thought they were going to die. Jesus was sleeping soundly on the bottom. They went and woke him up, and they said, Lord, save us, sozo, we're perishing. They did not mean, clearly, give us eternal life, we're going to hell. What they meant was we're rescue us, we're drowning. So perish here means physically. They died. They lost their lives. And so uh, Jesus basically says, you know, everyone needs to repent because sin left unchecked can ultimately bring about death. And we see this repeatedly throughout 
the Bible, Old and New Testament alike. The wages of sin is death. That's spiritual death. Remember we talked about death several months ago, meaning a separation. So it's spiritual death, but it's also physical death. Adam and Eve died physically because of sin. They never would have died had they not sinned. James tells us sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Um, in 1 John, we read that there is sin leading to death. All unrighteousness is sin. There is also sin not leading to death. Notice it doesn't say a sin. A lot of people misquote this verse. It's not saying there's one particular sin. If you do that, God's going to strike you with lightning. It's saying that there's certain sin that could lead to death. When you sin, you might die. Um, Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh... You're going to die. But if you live by the Spirit, you're going to live. Now, Proverbs has this principle repeatedly. As righteousness leads to life, he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Or the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Sin leads to death. Sin kills. And sin is an equal opportunity killer. It does not care whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Sin will kill you. So again, if you're sinning, stop it. Uh, walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. It's not healthy. doesn't have anything to do with your eternal destiny. That's a matter of faith. Uh, Proverbs says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Sin kills. Or, I love this one, A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. <laughs> It's a pretty you know, eloquent way to put it. Sinful behavior always leads to great problems. So it's a good idea to change your mind about it. But no one ever receives eternal life because they change their mind about their sinful behavior. Salvation is always by grace through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that same exact phrase in Greek, not of works, is used in Titus 3.5, the theme verse for not by works ministries. It's translated by, but it's the same Greek word. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now to him who works, the wages are, counted, are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes, there's faith, one of those 160 verses, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. So sinful behavior is bad. We should repent of it. If we don't, it could kill us. Um, not to say that uh, sin always results in that. I mean, the book of Proverbs is a book of general principles, but we live in a fallen world, and sometimes dirty, rotten, filthy sinners live to a ripe old age, and we have no idea why. And also, tragically, because of the curse of sin in this world, sometimes Innocent young people die tragically in a car accident. doesn't mean they were doing something wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that sin is always the cause of death, of, of, of physical death in a particular instance. Sometimes death is just an accident. Because or martyrdom, of, right? Or martyrdom. Yeah, that's a great example. Man, you're two for two tonight on <laughs> profundities. What did you have for supper? Did I have uh, supper tonight? Maybe that's, the, maybe that's fasting, it. I'm so You're holy. fasting. You're so holy. <laughs> nice. There's uh, three for you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, uh, so, but you see my point? We, we, we need to understand that 
a person who is wallowing around in sin, living a debauched lifestyle, fooling around, taking drugs, living a terrible life, they're, they're more likely to experience death than a person who is following God's roadmap and living the godly lifestyle. But in either case, there are exceptions. Some of the godliest people we know have died prematurely. Martyrdom is a good example. Also, some of the worst sinners somehow managed to get off and skate, skate free somehow, right? But that doesn't change the principle. It's like if you jump off a 10-story building, you're probably going to die. That you can find in Guinness Book of World Records. People who might have survived a 10-story jump doesn't mean you should go do it. You're still making a poor decision. And sin leads to death. So... We'll stop there, but just to summarize, we've talked now over the last two weeks about sin as it relates to eternal salvation. I mean, repentance as it relates to eternal salvation is a change of mind about God or Christ or coming to recognize that only Jesus can save you. Repentance as it relates to sinful behavior means to change your mind about that behavior, recognize it as sin, and decide to change it. Sometimes you can repent and it results in a change. Sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes you go back and forth. But repentance in and of itself doesn't guarantee uh, that you'll change it. And that's the whole reason that John the Baptist said we should bear fruits uh, worthy of repentance. It would make no sense if the repentance was the fruit. So it confuses the, the mental part of the equation. I realize this is wrong. I've decided to stop doing it with the actual action. I did stop doing it, right? One should lead to the other, but they're not automatic. All right, and then so we'll pick up next week. There's one other aspect of repentance I want to touch on, and then we'll kind of summarize it all. So bring your questions. I know we've talked about a lot. If you're watching this on video, feel free to email me if you have questions and love to dialogue a little bit further about it. Any last minute comments or questions? Any more profound wisdom from the front row? I'm all out. You're all out? You've used it all up? <laughs> All right. Well, I exhausted your wisdom. Anybody else? Awesome. Well, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.